Good evening. Am I coming through? Wonderful. Please do, uh, if you have your Bibles, um, open it up and have it open at that passage, uh, Acts 17. And if you why don't you have your Bibles? That's something we'll talk about afterwards. Wonderful. Father God, I pray that you would speak through me tonight. I pray that you'd speak also into my own heart. And I pray that you would lead each of us forward in the way you want us to go. Amen. This uh, passage that we've had read out is probably quite a familiar passage to you. Um, It's one of the more memorable evangelistic moments in the New Testament. And what I'm uh, suggesting we do tonight is we're going to look at it together um, and we're going to see what it has to say. Hello, can you... Just looking at a confused face at the back (laughs) or two. I'm going to see what it says, uh, what Paul was, was doing, and see if we can learn anything from what he was doing and relate it to our situation. So I'm going to ask, uh, for application, I'm going to ask questions as we go along. Uh, questions for us uh, on our own, but also perhaps uh, might be something for us to collect, reflect on as a community. Now I think my favourite part of this passage, my absolute favourite part, comes right at the beginning And it's just that first half verse, which says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens. And the people he's waiting for was uh, Silas and Timothy. He'd gone on ahead of them. They were going to join him uh, in Athens. And Paul was waiting. So essentially, the rest of what we hear that comes after this happens while Paul was killing time waiting for his friends. Paul was at a loose end walking round Athens. And he has one of the most <laughs> memorable evangelistic encounters that uh, we find in the New Testament. Isn't that amazing? He was probably bored. <laughs> bored walking round Athens, and yet God uses him powerfully. Do you ever find yourself at a loose end? Do you? Do you ever find yourself bored? Someone this morning, when I, uh, when I asked that rhetorical question, it was this morning, I'm, I'm being a little, looking for a little bit more back tonight, but not to worry, we'll warm you up. <laughs> Someone, uh, when I asked that rhetorical question this morning, shouted out, I haven't got the time. Too busy. We are very busy, aren't we? Too busy to be bored. And even if we do find ourselves at a loose end, perhaps we've got to the coffee shop a little bit before our friend. We pull out our phones, don't we? Those of us who have phones. And we see what's happening in the news and we check the internet. In fact, some of us walk around town like this, looking at our phones as we're going from one place to another, just catching up on emails, seeing what's happening on Facebook. We're very good at entertaining ourselves nowadays. We're very good at passing the time and not being bored. But I think Paul here, well, I think God here, used Paul's boredom, used Paul's downtime, 
use Paul at a loose end to do something amazing. As the old saying, devil, the devil makes hands uh, for idle, uh, work, work for idle hands. The devil makes work for idle hands. That's in a way that we're supposed to be working every moment just in case we have a moment off and then the devil will spring in. Well, actually, I think God makes work for bored people. So if you find yourself at a loose end, don't try and find something to pass the time. Perhaps let's walk around with open eyes. Because that's what Paul did. He was at a loose end, so he walked around Athens. If Paul had been busy, he probably could have found things to do. He probably could have sat down to write a letter to one of the churches he's planted. He quite liked writing letters. He could have got quite a few done, perhaps, when he was in Athens. Maybe he did. But if he had busied himself, he may have missed an opportunity. How much space do we leave in our lives? Space for God to fill. Now, I'm not talking about downtime. It's important that we have time to relax. That's just part of what we need as humans. But actually, how much space do we leave for God to do something? Maybe we should indulge ourselves in boredom from time to time and see if something comes up. So here's Paul at a loose end, and what he's doing to pass the time is he's walking around Athens. Now, what was Athens like? What would he have seen? Uh, I've not been. I'm sure there are people in the room who have. But at this time when Paul was walking around, Athens was a city with a great past. Fantastic things had happened in Athens. It was a really powerful place. It was a center for art and culture and religion and philosophy. But although the past was, was very great, the present in Athens wasn't so great because they'd been at war with, uh, with Rome and they hadn't done too well in the war and they'd wasted a lot of their money. They didn't have much money left over and they had been conquered by Rome. But they'd been given uh, the freedom. It had been made a free city again on account of their illustrious past. But really, all that Athens had to hold on to at this point was its uh, history was its status as a place of philosophy and uh, religion. And philosophy and debate were very important to them. In fact, we can see that in verse 21, which perhaps uh, goes a little bit over the top, but says that they did nothing else. They did nothing else but listen to the latest ideas and talk about the latest ideas. That was all they did. It was all they were really into. They loved it. It was what they were holding on to, perhaps. It was the, uh, the thing that reminded them of their great past. Now, although they liked debating, they were also very religious, and there were idols everywhere. Athens was pagan in the extreme. There were gods wherever you looked. And Paul, as he encountered this, as he walked around... He was greatly distressed. See, Paul was in touch with his emotions. Um, I don't mean to gender stereotype. Um, ladies, you do tend to be a little bit better uh, uh, engaging with your emotions than us men. Some do, some don't. As men, we're not quite so good, uh, if I can generalize in that way. We like to keep things hidden up. But Paul here was somebody who was engaged in his emotions. As he was walking around Athens, he allowed his emotions to speak to him and let him know how he was feeling and what was going on. And sometimes uh, our emotions can speak to us stronger than our rational minds. In certain ways, they can, they can lead us in ways that our rational minds don't. 
Now, Paul was a good Jew, and as he was walking around, he was walking around with his heritage as well. And what he knew from his heritage, what he'd been taught as a child, was the Ten Commandments, and he knew the history of Israel. And as any good Jew knows, the most important thing, um, or one of the most important things um, about being a Jew, about worshipping God, is that you have no other gods and no idols. In fact, uh, the Ten Commandments, it's right up there on the top. No other gods. Don't make idols. And indeed, the whole history of Israel is a story of, um, the, the, the kingdom of Israel is a story of God calling to, to Israel to, to be, to be uh, focused on him and them going off after other gods. And then things happening and God calling them back and them sort of returning and then going off again. Israel was always going after the gods of other nations. They kept getting it wrong. They kept going after other gods and, and things got worse and worse and worse until eventually God said, no, I've had enough. And the northern kingdom of Israel got taken off into exile. And then a little while later, the southern kingdom, which was doing a bit better, but not much, had the same issues, going after other gods, and got taken off into exile as well. They returned, some returned, a remnant. But taken into exile because they could not stay faithful to God. And Paul, knowing this, and walking around, and seeing all these other gods, all these statues, all these idols... He gets distressed. And in fact, that word also implies, uh, it's a very strong word, it also implies grief and anger. He's feeling really emotionally upset, angry, grieved by what he sees. All these other gods. All these things that are being worshipped and taking the worship of the one who should be worshipped. Are we provoked in the same way? Do we have the same emotional reaction to the false gods of our time? Because although they may not be as obvious as perhaps they were in Athens, I'm willing to bet that there are no less false gods in our society than there were there. And as we walk around our village here, the town of Taunton, wherever we go, we walk by on every corner false gods. Things which would take people's worship, take worship which is rightfully God's. What are the idols of our time? Adrian um, heard me speak this morning. And he actually had a, um, a quote that uh, he's, he's let me have and let me use for tonight, which, which I think kind of says it in better ways than I could. And the guy who said this wasn't a Christian. Um, but he says what I think I want to say in, in a better way. So I'm going to read it to you now. So these are the words of the American novelist, David Foster Wallace. As he was speaking to a class of students graduated from Kenyon College, and he said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason may be uh, for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you uh, tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, 
And when time and age start showing you, start showing, you will die a million deaths before, you finally, before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship intellect, being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They're default settings. It's a pretty bleak outlook. Not exactly a cheery encouragement to graduating students just starting off in life. Indeed, just a short time later, Wallace committed suicide. That's the world we live in. A world which worships things, power, itself, beauty, image, and it is all around us. It's all around us, and they're so, so common, so widespread, that we don't even see it. We become blind to it. We need to listen with our whole selves. Listen with our emotions as much as with our mind. So what's Paul's response? Well, he's angry and he's upset, but he does what he does. He goes and finds some people to talk to. And he starts off uh, by going to the synagogue and meeting with Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And he also goes to the marketplace, meets those who happen to be there day by day. Now, the marketplace was a place where things were were, uh, bought and sold, but it was also a place where people came to talk about ideas. They came to debate. They came to discuss the latest things. And it was a place where the common man could come and engage in this as well. And so uh, Paul goes there, and he's telling people about a simple message. Simple message for us, because we know it, about Jesus and his death and resurrection. What are the places in our society where people gather to meet? Where people gather to meet and discuss, to hear news, to discuss different ideas, people who are different from us. Might not be so obvious in our society because there isn't really that kind of communal forum, is there? But there are places, and if we think about it, we'll, we'll, we'll notice them. The Hive Cafe here, people come in and chat, and you can meet people who you perhaps don't know um, day to day. In the pub, get together and have a, a chat, maybe chat to the person behind the bar. Go out for tea or coffee. Perhaps you belong to a book group or something like that. Maybe at work. What's the place people go to have a gossip at work? Is it around the, uh, the, the kettle? The people chat there in, in the coffee room. Maybe it's out of the smoker's corner. You might not be a smoker, but actually that might be the place to go if you want to chat to some people. Take a mask. Think of your health. If you're a teacher, uh, maybe it's the staff room at school. If you're a student, maybe it's the common room. Where are the places people go to talk about ideas? There are places out there. They might not be obvious, but when you think about it, there are places where we go to talk to people. 
Maybe for some people that's online. They, they have uh, discussions in forums or on, uh, on Facebook. I, I don't really know about that. I, I just go on Facebook to, to laugh at people's pictures and, and make rude comments about them. But other people may have, have conversations there. Where are the places where we talk, where we have those conversations in our lives with our friends, with our colleagues? Well, Paul's there uh, in the marketplace, and uh, he, he causes quite a stir. And there's two particular sets of uh, people who he causes a stir with. Uh, philosophers of different sorts, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And, uh, and they begin to debate with him. Doesn't sound like much a debate. What well, they say, some say he's a babbler. Not a great debating tactic, is it? No, you're just babbling. I'm not listening to what you're saying. But others seem uh, to think he's, he's uh, advocating foreign gods. And there's two different reactions, and perhaps those different reactions come from the different philosophers who he's encountering, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, um, hopefully there aren't any historians in the, in the room tonight, or any philosophers for that matter, because if there are, you may well find the limit of my, uh, my knowledge here. My knowledge extends as far as Wikipedia um, from this week. So, um, but it's a start, isn't it? It's a place. So the Epicureans, uh, they had a philosophy, and it was, called, um, it, it was a type called atomic materialism. Does that mean anything to anybody in the room? Thank goodness. <laughs> atomic materialism. Um, and so essentially what they believed is that they believed in the real tangible world. Everything you can see, feel, measure. That's what they believed in. And because of that, they believed that uh, pleasure is the highest goal to be attained. And principally, they were slightly different because the hedonists had a similar sort of belief. They, they were hedonists in, in that respect, but principally, they were slightly different because they were more concerned in the removal of fear and pain. That the highest possible uh, goal that you could attain to was to live a life that had no fear and had no pain. Perhaps then it was this group, the Epicureans, who thought Paul was a babbler. Because what was Paul's message? Paul's message was about this man, Jesus, who was God, who came to earth to die on a cross. Well, that makes no sense. If life is all about avoiding pain and fear then that makes absolute no sense. Why would anyone do that? The Stoics, on the other hand, they were material pantheists. Now, does anyone know what that means? We've got a hand at the back. That's not, I, I'm probably going to get corrected at the end then, because this is where I'm on a bit more shaky ground. <laughs> but it seems to me, from what I, uh, the reading I did, was that they believed that the divine is in everything. So they believe in the real world, everything that can be seen and measured, but they believe that that's, that's God. So God is, is nature. So they, they really are pagan in that respect. God is also uh, in fate, directing people, chance encounters. But God is nothing more than that. God is nothing beyond this, this world, this existence. But he is in, in this whole place. Everything is God. The universe is God, if you would. And they believe that the, the universe had no beginning and end. In fact, they believe that everything kept repeating, being um, reborn again, destined to live that same universe over and over again um, when it gets to the end of its time to start again. 
Now, does that sound familiar to you? In fact, both of these uh, different philosophies have, have common place in our society, don't they? There's resonances of them in our society. You see, the Epicureans, where pleasure is the highest goal and avoiding fear, well, I know a lot of people who live with that philosophy. That's all they care about. All they care about is getting through their life without having too much debt, without having too much worry, without having too much stress, and trying to enjoy themselves. I know an awful lot of people who live that way. And, uh, and those Stoics, well, for me, that kind of reminds me of the New Atheist Movement. That there's nothing beyond this universe. That this universe is everything. Essentially, this universe is God. There's nothing more than this. And in fact, there's no real beginning, or we can't find a beginning. There doesn't need to be. And when this universe gets to the end of its time, after it's finished expanding, and however many uh, billion years that will be, it will start contracting again back into a tiny little speck, and then it's just going to explode again. And it just goes on and on and on. And maybe, maybe there are thousands and thousands of different universes out there, all doing the same thing, all living at the same time. But there's nothing beyond it. There's no outside force. There's no creator. In fact, I, um, I do encourage you to come along to... Where is it? It's in your notice sheet. Um, it's one of the things that Fran said you could read for yourself. But I just want to highlight it. Do take note of this. Come along to this if you can, because um, I think this is going to be an amazing evening where uh, Dennis Alex, Dr. Dennis Alexander will talk about science and faith and engage with a lot of uh, this. I think for me, the, the New Atheist Movement, it's, it's philosophy masquerading as science all too often. But maybe it was this group, the, the Stoics, who wanted to hear a bit more. Um, the idea of rebirth would have been something that they would be interested in. Being born, being restored, coming back to life would have been interesting to them. Anyway, Paul uh, causes enough of a stir that people want to hear more of what he has to say. People are reacting to that message of who Jesus is enough that they want to hear more. So they bring him to uh, the Areopagus. What sort of reaction do we get when we talk about Jesus? Or actually, perhaps a better question for some of us, maybe many of us, is what sort of reaction do we fear we might get if we were to talk about Jesus? You see, in many places, Paul went, there was hostility. There was real hostility to the message. But here, there's genuine interest. Now, there might be genuine interest because they like to discuss ideas, but actually, there is interest. They want to know more. And so Paul does not disappoint them. So he comes before the council. And this is basically the local council, and this council get to decide uh, if they're going to let him continue preaching this message, if this is a, a philosophy that's worth sending out to the people, whether it's something that needs shutting down. Paul stands up before them. And Paul before them simply tells them the truth of who God is. He doesn't compromise the message to make it palatable. In fact, some of what he says is quite rude. But he does make it culturally relevant to them. He finds a way in and he puts it in terms that they understand. 
And he connects with them through their interest in faith. And he explains to them the truth of who God is. So he starts off by being quite complimentary. People of Athens, I see that you, in, you are in every way very religious. For I walked around, looked carefully at your objects of worship, and even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And that's where Paul stops being nice. Because <laughs> then he says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. I think what he means there is he's going to proclaim what they don't understand rather than that they're ignorant, uh, although he does both. (laughs) He demonstrates to them that they are ignorant by their own admission. Ignorant of this unknown God. They worship something and yet they do not even know who it is. Well, this God who you worship, who you don't know, let me introduce him to you. That's what he does. And what he does over, the, uh, the, over his discourse is he flips their understanding of worship. He turns it around. And he shows them that how the only God who is worship is one who does not need our help. I think I cut out then, so I'll say that again. The only God who is worth our worship is one who does not need our help. He gives them the big picture from creation all the way up to where they are now to to demonstrate to them that they have a need of a relationship with God. And that this God who they don't yet know is the only one who is worth knowing. Simply put, all your other gods are pointless. They are everywhere but they are pointless. You have put your faith in the wrong place and it cannot save you. There's a message for the people of Athens, but I think that's the message for our world. I think that is the one message our world needs to hear. All your gods are pointless. Everything you worship, power, money, self, image, Whatever it is, is pointless. It's everywhere, but it's pointless. We have put our faith in the wrong place, and it cannot save us. This is the message our world needs to hear. Save us. Paul goes on, verse 29. He makes it clear that one day they're going to have to account for what they have believed. looked their ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent one day we're going to have to account for what we put our faith in and no matter who you are no matter where you are if you have put your faith in anything other than God it will let you down There are some very, very rich and powerful people in our world. But one day, they will die. One day, they will come to the end of their life and they will turn to all their money, their power and their influence and it will not be able to save them. The only thing 
that can save us is faith in Jesus Christ. There may be some people here tonight who don't actually have a faith in Jesus. If that's you, then I would love to have a conversation with you. Because there is nothing, nothing more important than you can do than meet with Christ. He is the only one who can save you. He is the only one who can fill you. He is the only one who can make you complete. Everything else you chase after will disappoint you. Only Christ. Paul found a way to communicate with the people of Athens in a way that they understood. And he gives them the opportunity to come to Christ. And to my reading of the text, it seems he did it simply by having time, having space, having open eyes, and being willing to speak the truth. See, the Holy Spirit is working through Paul as he gives him space to do so. I believe that we can suffocate the work of God through us. And we can do it in a number of ways. But simply not giving time to God, not giving time to work, can do this. So let's think about our context. Let's think about our own front lines. Think about our families, our friends, our work colleagues, the people we see day to day. You are the best person, the person who is best placed to preach the good news to those who you see every day, every week. That's the reality. I am the best place to talk to my friends about Jesus. Think, for example, of a street preacher, someone standing in the street preaching to Jesus with people just walking past. Who stops to listen? There's no relationship so people don't stop. But if you said those same words, those same words were coming out of the mouth of that street preacher to your friends and family, well, maybe some of them would stop. See, if we can't find a way to tell our friends and families and colleagues about Jesus, then who can? What was the response uh, to Paul's message? Well, it was me. In fact, we don't really expect anything else. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Some people sneered, didn't want to know, thought it was a joke. Some people wanted to hear a bit more. They weren't sure what they believed, but wanted to hear a bit more about it. Who knows where that went? But some people believed. I want you just in a moment just to think about your friends and families. Think about your colleagues. Think about those people who you see regularly. If you were to talk to them in the right way, 
in a way which would be relevant and not in a forced way. But if you were to talk to them and tell them about Jesus, some of them would laugh at you. Some of them would perhaps get angry. Some of them would send you away. Some of them wouldn't want to know. Some of them might be quite interested, might be willing to have another conversation with you about it, might want to hear a bit more. But some of your friends, some of your families, some of your work colleagues, some of those people you see every day, they'll believe. They'll believe. But if we don't tell them, who else will? Who else can?